Welcome to the podcast of Woburn Baptist Church. We hope that you enjoy listening to the sermons and other audio provided by us. Feel free to share what you find here, and we hope that it will be beneficial to you as you seek to know and follow Christ. As it was in the days of Noah, this is the beginning uh, of, the, of the lessons that I've prepared, and I've worked hard on this. I'm very passionate about this truth, and you're going to see why. I'm going to make it very, very clear, and maybe you're excited about it, maybe you're not, but there's a reason I believe that most people are excited about the end times. And you go into most Christian bookstores, you're going to find a lot of books, shelves filled with books talking about what people, men's opinions about what the scripture says concerning the return of Christ and what's going on in the world today. And, uh, you know, we're all supposed to act as if this is the end times. The Lord calls this the end of the age. But, you know, the Lord has wired all of us, all of us, his creation with a desire to see him again, a desire to come face to face with him, our creator. And I think that's why there's, a, there's this, this desire within the hearts of most people to know a little bit more about what the Bible has to say or, or wonder about the end times, when this world is going to come to its conclusion, what it's going to be like. Whether you're a believer or not, there's this inward desire because we are wired by our creator that way. Now, up until the day I moved away from home uh, here in northern Illinois to go to college in 1977 in Oklahoma, my mom, my mom was the man when it came to cooking. That's all I'd ever know. You know, I believe my mom was the best cook on the world and nobody could convince me otherwise. But when I matured and I moved away and I started getting meals by other people, you know, and even at the college and, and uh, I'd be in other people's homes and ministry, I was exposed to other cooks and upon further investigation, I found other people could make as good or better fried chicken lasagna, homemade bread and pies and cakes is my mama. And you know what turned out? Everybody could make better meatloaf than my mom. <laughs> Everybody. There was no question. But I didn't know that. All it took was a little investigation on my own to discredit what I had come up to believe. You see what I'm saying? Now you may have a preconceived or traditional opinion how you think the second coming of Jesus Christ is going to occur and you may or may not be right. But that's what we're here to find out this week. And your personal opinion may be the only opinion you've ever considered. But I have to ask, have you investigated the scriptures to find out if your preconceived opinion is right or not? And yes, it does matter what you believe. In short, are you a Berean? What? You know, some of you know what I'm talking about. Uh, there's a church halfway across Missouri, uh, about mile marker 149. And for years, I've traveled as a full-time evangelist, and I'm a pastor, but for years I've traveled as a full-time evangelist, and I beat a path up and down 44. And it might be the middle of the night, I'd go past two places, a little town in Missouri called Sleeper. That, that town mocked me. Seems like I'm always driving past between 3 and 3.30 in the morning on my way back to Oklahoma, you know, and I see this town Sleeper. Like, yes, that's what I'd like to do. But I'd also pass a Berean Baptist Church, and I called it Berean. You know, when I finally had a cell phone I, in 1995, 96, I started calling my wife, and I'd wake her up, and I'd go, Berean Baptist Church, you know, so she'd know where I was. I'd mispronounce it on purpose, and she'd go, Berean. 
I'm going back to sleep. I said, okay. But Berean, Berean, are you a Berean? See, in, in Acts chapter 17, Paul and Silas were run out of Thessalonica for preaching the truth. And the next place they went to was a little area called Berea. And it says in Acts 17, 11, now the Bereans were of more noble character than the Thessalonians. For they received the message with great eagerness that Paul was preaching. And they examined the scriptures every day to see if what Paul was saying was true. They just didn't take what he said. They had to look for themselves. They wanted to make sure. They would examine the Old Testament that they had to see if it matched up with what Paul was saying. Make sure he's not just feeding us a line here. I encourage my flock to be Bereans. I say, now I'm standing and I'm trying my best and I beg God, don't let me lead my people astray. Please, Lord. But at the same time, I say, don't just take my word for it. Be Bereans. Examine the scriptures for yourselves. This book is what determines what is true. My office is full of books. People will walk in, they'll say, Pastor Rick, do you really read all these? I have read or scanned every one of these books. But the thing is, if it's not this book, it is simply the opinions of men. This book is what matters. This is the final authority when it comes to truth. So it does matter what you believe. Otherwise, Satan would not be trying so hard to deceive us as to the manner of the return of Christ. There are so many preachers out there now that are afraid to preach the book of Revelation. Oh, it's just too difficult. Or, or I have my opinions, but I'm afraid there are people in my congregation that have different opinions, and I don't want to offend them. And I'm thinking, you know, I love my flock. Just like I love my family. I'm going to tell my family the truth. I'm going to tell my flock the truth. We talk about the pastor. You know, you're being a pastor. You know, we want to protect the flock. This is what I want to do. I want to share with the flock. And the Lord has laid this on my heart because I'll tell you, whenever I'm driving around, I'm listening to preachers on the radio and I'm listening, I'm listening, I'm going, yeah, amen, amen. And then they get to the end times and so many of them, 75% of them have totally wrong. And I start yelling at the radio. You know, people probably wonder, what's that guy doing? He's just, just honking at the radio. Man, that's wrong, that's wrong. And it matters. My wife Nancy and I had breakfast at a Waffle House recently, and instead of my usual orange juice, I went with my favorite beverage on the planet, unsweet tea. Now, she always drinks Coke. That's what she gets all of her fluid intake is Coca-Cola. I wish I'd have known that when we got married, I would have bought stock in the company. <laughs> but that's what she always gets. So uh, we're talking, and the, the, the waiter comes, and he grabs our drinks and is refilling them. And we're talking, and he comes and sets them down. And both of us reach at the same time, and we take a sip of our drink. And both of us went, whoa! Because I guess when he came back, he crossed them. You know, now, it's not like that I don't like Coca-Cola. But what was I expecting? Unsweet tea. And I got Coke instead, and I went... Whoa, you know, that caught me off guard. It was the same, same with Nancy. Poor Nancy, she's, she's wondering what's happened to her world. Where's the flavor? Where's the fizz? Where's the joy? You know, she's got my bland, unsweet iced tea. It's not what she expected. Consider this for a moment. The Old Testament, the Jews were expecting one thing when it came to the Messiah. And they got something totally different. It wasn't what they were expecting. Christ's first arrival on earth was prophesied as early as Genesis 3.15 and continued throughout the Old Testament. He would come as a humble, suffering servant, riding on the colt of a donkey, not, only on a, not on a steed, 
Not, a, not even on a donkey, but on the colt of a donkey, about as low as you can go. A man well acquainted with suffering, rejected by his own people. He would die the horrible death of a criminal. They had all these prophecies, and yet for centuries, even though nearly every Jew knew of the promised coming of the Messiah and were anxiously awaiting his coming, the manner that he came still caught them by surprise. They're going, whoa, what is this? They were expecting one thing, they got something else. Where's the majesty? Where's the conqueror, the great deliverer on the white steed that's going to deliver us from, from the Romans? Or earlier from the Greeks, earlier from the Babylonians, earlier from the Per. You know, they're trying to figure out where is he? Where's the joy of his coming? They had all the information down to the city he was going to be born in, in Micah 5 2. See, there were even two Bethlehems. It even showed them which one Bethlehem Ephratah. This is the Bethlehem. They showed where he was coming. And the Jews misinterpreted all of it, and the nation of Israel has been paying for it ever since. Now, so the Apostle Paul begins 1 Thessalonians 4 with these words, and Jared beautifully prayed them just a few moments ago. Brothers, we don't want you to be ignorant, misinformed. You know, for a Christian to be ignorant or misinformed about what uh, the truth of the Word of God says is a dangerous tragedy. The Lord has given us His Holy Spirit. And Jesus promised us in John 16, 13. But when he, the spirit of truth, comes, when you, were, when you were saved, if you were saved, you asked Christ to come into your life, his Holy Spirit was given to you. Whether you felt it or not, if you genuinely trusted Christ, you received that part of God in yourself. His Holy Spirit, when he, the spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all truth. He will not speak on his own. He's going to speak only what he hears. And he will tell you, and I love this, what is yet to come. We overlook that a lot of times. We say, well, there's just so many things we can't know. The Holy Spirit, if you're eager enough, if you're going to hunt, if you're willing to search, because the Lord says, if you seek me, you will find me if you seek me with all your heart. If you're willing to do the work, there's a dirty four-letter word right there, if you're ready to study and do the work, he'll show you a lot of things. He'll open your mind to a lot of truths. What is yet to come? The Apostle Paul agreed in 1 Corinthians 2, 9 and 10. I just sang it. No eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind has conceived what God has prepared for those who love him. But then we, go, we leave it right there. We cut it off right there. But look, he goes on. But God has revealed it to us by his spirit. Now, we're tempted to just say, no eye is conceived, no mind, you know, no heart. That's just the way it is. But he goes on. But God has revealed it to us by his spirit. The spirit searches all things, even the deep things of God. You know what the problem is? We're too lazy. We don't want to do the work. We don't want to dig into the book. It's a thick book. Who here has read War and Peace all the way from cover to cover? You know, it's a thick book. I don't want to have to... I'm just going to listen to preachers on the radio. I'm going to listen to our pastor. I'm going to listen to our Sunday school teacher. And that's good enough. That's what we're, we're tempted to do. Believers are encouraged to hunt for the truth, even the deep things. Yet there is an alarming amount of misinformation being openly taught and accepted among Christians concerning the most climactic event in all of human history still to come, the return of Jesus Christ to this earth. The book Revelation is not too hard if you will compare Scripture to Scripture, Old Testament with the New Testament, and seek the truth. 
For men to be deceived, the devil knew where he had to start. You know where he started? He undermined the family. He attacked the family. As goes the family, so goes the nation. Satan went after the family. He undermined it. He's redefined it. We've let him do it. Deuteronomy 6. The, the, the Ten Commandments were given in Exodus 20 and Deuteronomy 5. In Deuteronomy 6, Moses writes, you are to pass these things on to your children. Share them. Talk with them about it when they get up in the morning, when they go to bed at night, when you're walking along the road. He says, wear the jewelry, wear the t-shirt, put the plaques on the wall. It's for me and my house. We're going to serve. Just let it be a part of their life. But what happens if Satan attacks the family? The majority of marriages today end in divorce. And here's the thing. How many of the remaining families, say 40% of families, still have two-parent homes by the time the kids reach 12 years old? How many of those families are diligently teaching their children this at home? How many? A good friend of mine, him and I were born on the same day. We went to the same church in northern Illinois. We grew up together. We played ball together. But we were in the same youth group, had all the same teachers, the same pastors. We went to the first school together was Olivet Nazarene College in Kankakee, Illinois. It was a good first step away from, from home for us. It's only 30 miles away from where we grew up. So that's how we started our first year. We had to have Bible classes together. Now, Jamie was brilliant. He's a smart guy. He was an accounting major. And so he, he knew a lot of stuff. But whenever it came to our Bible classes, when we got to them, we took them together as well. He was getting D's. And I was, it was, to me, it was review. And this was just bothering him immensely. He finally says, Rick, I've got to keep my GPA up. I don't understand. You and I went to, to, to all this church together. We know all this, together, this stuff. So we sat down and we started studying together. You know what we found out? I had been taught at home. He had not. He got all the same teaching I got at church. But that's not enough. We need to be taught within our home. My mom was a, the daughter of a, a Southern Baptist preacher, Vivian Bentley, who used to roam these roads and preach. And he's probably preached in this church many times years ago. Because he preached, he was a director of missions uh, around here years ago, 60s, and, or, yeah, in the 50s and 60s. So my mom grew up teaching me. I knew all the books of the Bible by the time I was four years old, singing them, standing in front of the church. You know, she told me all the stories, even the obscure stories of Scripture. To me, it was review. She taught me all these things, memorizing scripture and how to do daily Bible readings myself. Was I excited about it when I was a kid? No. I'll be honest, I was not. But by the time I was 15, it started clicking. And I started falling in love with, with the Lord, with the music in the church, and it started making sense. Some of the things our parents try to make us do, we think, ah, oh, man, I don't know. But I'm glad she did. And that was the difference. I had been taught at home and had been feeding myself the truth of the Word of God. Jamie had not. So don't think you're just getting enough. You need to come. You need to be a part of this family. You need to get what you get here. But are we teaching it at home? Satan has undermined the home. As Christians become more and more biblically illiterate with each passing generation, we're susceptible to false teaching. And that includes what the Bible has to say about the return of Christ. And it's coming. The Apostle Peter warned us about false teachers. 2 Peter, he said, they will secretly introduce destructive heresies. Many will follow their shameful ways and will bring the way of truth into disrepute. In their greed, these false teachers will exploit you with stories they have made up. 
As I said, it's an old trick of the devil. Remember, Lucifer began twisting the words of God in the Garden of Eden, didn't he? He got a hold of Eve and he said, hey, now listen, did God really say you would die if you ate of that, you know? And that's a good-looking tree right there. That fruit looks good. Did God really say? And he started questioning. And, you know, and Adam and Eve didn't know how to answer the serpent, so an unprepared couple were easily deceived, and what happened? Paradise was lost. They got kicked out of the garden. And this very same tempter frantically continues to distort the truth concerning the return of Christ. And tragically enough, there are not enough biblically knowledgeable believers to recognize what is fact from fiction. If somebody stands up there and they say it loud enough and they say it uh, strong enough and convincingly enough, well, he must be right. So once again, millions of Christians, particularly American Christians, and I'm going to talk about why, are going to be caught off guard by the manner of the Lord's return to the earth. And get this, in the same way the Jewish nation was caught off guard by the Lord's first coming, even though they had all the truth. They were caught off guard. Satan has not been <laughs> lazy. Shortly before Jesus was to be arrested, he's sitting with his disciples on the Mount of Olives. Now, he just had a, a set-to with the Pharisees. And so the, the disciples are probably trying to calm Jesus down a little bit. But they ask him, "When you're talking about the temple and all these beautiful buildings being torn down. When is this going to happen? And, and Lord, what's going to be the sign, the sign of your return and the end of the age? Now, some of what Jesus told them did have to do with what was going to happen 40 years in the future when the, when the Romans were going to totally annihilate the Jews. They were going to knock down that whole city, the temple. They were going to desecrate all of it. And 1.1 million Jews were going to be butchered at the hands of the Romans in AD 70. But Jesus was using that coming judgment as a springboard to set up the final judgment as a picture of what was going to come on the whole earth at his return. The Lord gives us many pictures, smaller pictures of what's coming. Now we're going to focus on a particular passage this morning that has intrigued and confused many Christians concerning the Lord's coming back. Matthew 24. I encourage you, even though you got the scriptures up here, and I'm so grateful for this, and I thank Addie and, and Brother Jared for doing this, uh, I, I encourage you to mark up your Bibles. Take them, highlight and, and, and do this. Matthew 24, beginning in 36 through 44, Jesus says, listen guys, no one knows about that day or hour, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Now some manuscripts don't have uh, nor the Son. In any case, when Jesus became a man, how, the, how does Jesus not know when he's coming? You know, when he became a man, he allowed himself to be limited in many ways. And it's possible that he may, not, he may have been able to include himself in this. I don't even know right now. My father will tell me when it's time. Son, that's it. That's the last one. That little girl just prayed to, to receive uh, the Lord in England with that missionary that y'all prayed for this morning. She just prayed to receive. That's the last one. Sound the trumpet. Son, go get my children. That day could be today, like we just sang. What if it were today? That could be the case. But anyway, someday we'll be able to ask Jesus face to face. Lord, about that right here. Uh, did you really say, did you really not know or, or what? Can you tell us? And someday you'll be able to ask him about those things. But he goes on and here it is. This is the part that has messed a lot of people up right here. It's been distorted. As it was in the days of Noah, 
so it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. Who's the Son of Man? Jesus. For in the days before the flood, people were eating and drinking, marrying, giving in marriage, up to the day Noah entered the ark. And they knew nothing about what would happen until the flood came and took them all away. Now, first of all, Noah was building the ark 100, 120 years. He'd been preaching. They knew something was, I mean, he, they, they, he, they were told something was coming, but they still acted like what? We didn't know. I found that out just on Sunday mornings, Brother Jerry, when I make announcements. I just assume everybody's listening to what I say you know, when I'm making the announcements. I try to be exciting about it. You know. But then later on, my phone will light up. Brother Rick, when are we meeting? What's happening? What, what, what's going on? What time are we rehearsing? You know, I'm going, it's like I'm just talking to my is going out in the thin air. You know, people don't always listen. And they weren't listening to Noah. So in, in other words, there was normal life going on right up to the flood came the people were caught off guard and it says they were taken the flood came and what took them all away they were taken by the flood waters in judgment and then jesus goes on this is how it become at the coming of the son of man two men will be in the field one will be what taken, taken. and the other left two women will be grinding with a handmill one will be taken, taken and the other left. They are taken in judgment. For years now, people have tried to make this sound like a, a secret return of Christ where he whisks his faithful followers away to be spared severe trials and hardships in the last days before the Lord comes back for real while unbelievers are left behind. Many of you probably bought that whole series of books and read them by LaHaye and Jenkins, you know. Uh, but look, Jesus doesn't change gears in the middle of his story. He said the people who didn't repent in Noah's day were taken. The flood came upon them suddenly and took them all away. Listen carefully, because Jesus then said that is how it will be when he returns. Two men together, one taken, the other left. Same with the ladies, no discrimination here. Taken in judgment, not to be spared. Before anyone who's been taught differently gets too upset, this is entirely consistent with Jesus' previous teaching in Matthew 13. I'd love for you to, to look there. Matthew 13, in the parable of the weeds, or the wheat and the tares, however you've been raised to believe it, or how to call it. Matthew 13, beginning in verse 24, Jesus told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while everyone was sleeping, and I underline that in my Bible, sleeping off guard, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. Now, when the wheat sprouted and formed heads, then the weeds also appeared. Now look at the, ser the servants. The owner's servants came to him and said, Sir, didn't you sow good seed in your field? Where then did these weeds come from? What are they doing? They're blaming the master. We thought we were sowing good, good, good seed. What's going on? You know, people blame God today for everything, don't they? How could you let something like this happen? People do that all the time. You know, the Lord's got big enough shoulders. He can handle the criticism. But at the same time, it's not his fault. An enemy did this, he replied. He could go on and say, well, you were sleeping, but he didn't. The servants asked him, well, do you want us to go and pull them up? People are also willing to give God advice. And it's usually wrong. 
They, they want to go pour, they want to pull, you want to, we'll just go pull all these weeds up then, right? He says, no, because while you're pulling up the weeds, you may root up the wheat with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. At that time, I will tell the harvesters, now get this, first, collect the weeds and tie them in bundles to be burned. Then gather the wheat and bring it into my barn. God is merciful. He is so merciful. Sinners and saved alike live side by side all over this planet. And the Lord, he says in Matthew, says he allows the sun to, to shine on the just and the unjust. He allows the rain to fall on the just and the unjust. He is so merciful to give time. He's not willing that any should perish. He wants everybody to be saved. He's giving them opportunity. The disciples ask him, can you explain this a little bit further? So Jesus continued, the one who sowed the good seed is the son of man. He's making it plain. Me, Jesus, he says. The field is the world. The good seed stands for the sons of the kingdom. Now the weeds are the sons of the evil one, the unbelievers, and the enemy who sows them is the devil. He's being pretty plain here now. He's speaking plainly. Now listen to this. He says, the harvest, when the harvest comes, it is the what? End of the age. We've heard that term a few times, haven't we? And the harvesters are the angels. By the way, how long did Jesus say he would stay with his followers in the form of the Holy Spirit as they fulfilled the Great Commission? Till the end of the age. You hear that? To the end of the age. In Matthew 28, 19 and 20, the Lord gave us our marching orders. He says, Go, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything I have told you, everything I have commanded you, and surely I am with you always to the end of the age. Not until some secret time when I'm going to pull you out first to spare you hardship that's going to be coming on this world, and then after a time, there'll be another end of the age. The parable of the wheat and the weeds continues. The harvesting angels, they've collected the sons of the devil. And Jesus said, as the weeds are pulled and burned in the fire, so it will be at the end of the age. The Son of Man is going to send out his angels. They will weed out of his kingdom everything that causes sin and all who do evil. They will throw them into the fiery furnace where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. You've heard this in other parables. Then the righteous... Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. He who has ears, let him hear. He who has ears, who has the Holy Spirit, he who is truly saved, you have the Holy Spirit, you have your holy hearing on. Do you have your spiritual ears on? Are you hearing this? There is a similar feel at the great white throne judgment in Revelation chapter 20. Christ is sitting on the throne. He's been given authority to judge by his Father. And in Matthew 25, 31 through 33, Jesus says this. When the Son of Man comes, here's another parable. When he comes in all his glory, all the angels with him, he's saying it again and again. He will sit on his throne in heavenly glory. All the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate the people from one another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He's going to put the sheep on his right, the goats on his left. The rebellious goats, if you finish it, they're cast into the lake of fire. And then the righteous sheep are ushered into the kingdom. He's consistent. 
The teaching is consistent. Parable after parable. The Lord has called every single one of us who are believers to be salt. To be, to be, to be light and salt. We are to be the light of the world. We are to push back the darkness a little longer. We are to preserve against decay in society a little longer so that more people can be saved during that time. We're to be found faithfully serving when he comes back to finally settle his accounts because the master's coming, parable after parable. Be found faithful, be, be found. Our school teachers used to give us pop quizzes. Remember that? Do they still do that today, pop quizzes? Why do they give pop quizzes without warning you? They want you to stay studied up. Yeah, they, because you say, if I know when the final test is coming, what is our human nature? Most of us. At the last minute. The last minute. Yeah, I got a test tomorrow. I got a cram tonight. You know, well, in the college, we call it all-nighters, pulling all-nighters. You know, we do whatever we had to do, but we're going to study and cram as much as we can because we know the test is coming tomorrow at such and such a time. Our teachers would give us pop quizzes when we were growing up because they wanted us to stay studied up. Stay studied up. Don't wait till the last minute. And what does the Lord say? Always be prepared. The master can come back at any time. Don't be caught off guard. He's coming. He's coming like a thief. It doesn't mean he's coming unseen. It means he's coming unexpected at a time when you don't expect him. He's going to come. So the Lord points out that when he does come back, people are going to be going about their daily lives, conducting business, eating out at your favorite restaurants, raising your families, you're planning weddings, you've got vacations, you're planning for your retirement. You know, we're hoping Nancy, my wife, can retire in about 14 months. We're shooting for that day. Lord willing. Okay? Most people are going through life not giving a moment's thought to the return of the king. The king is coming, but that's not the focus point. The one who gave you all your blessings of this life the Lord says, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. All these other things that you're so concerned about, Dan, those things will be taken care of. Put me first, he says. There's nowhere in this book mentioned a secret rapture where the Lord pulls believers out of the world to avoid trials. No, in fact, every time the Bible mentions the return of Christ, he is highly visible and it's quite noisy. Shouts, trumpets, and here are a few. Matthew 24, 30 and 31. You also have your sheet there. I did that to help you. Uh, at, the, at this time, it says, the sign of the Son of Man is going to appear in the sky. All the nations of the earth will mourn. You're wondering, why is everybody going to mourn? Matthew chapter 7, the Lord says, hey, the road to destruction is wide and traveled by what? Many. But the road to heaven, the road to righteousness is narrow. The gate is entered by only a relative few. In comparison. So sure, the earth is going to mourn when they see him going, oh no, it's true. Oh, I thought I had time. Where's the preacher? <laughs> it's too late. It's too late. They're going to see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with power, great glory, and he will send his angels with a loud trumpet call. They will gather his elect from the four winds from one end of the heavens to the other. Sounds consistent with what we've been saying, right? Acts 1.11. Jared also prayed this a little while ago. Men of Galilee, right after the Lord ascended, before their very eyes, his followers, two angels standing there, and they said, why do you stand here looking into the sky? Listen, the same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven is going to come back in the same way you have seen him go into heaven. Visibly, physically, you're going to see him come. Not secretly, 
Not where three quarters or four fifths of the world miss it. First Thessalonians 4.16. This is a passage a lot of people will try to use for a secret return. But listen. For the Lord himself is going to come down from heaven with a loud command. Does that sound quiet? With the voice of the archangel, with the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. They're given special honor, and we're going to be talking about that later on. You can read more about that in Revelation 20. After that, we who are still alive, say he comes back in our lifetime, we who are still alive and left will be caught up together to meet the Lord in the air, and so we're going to be with the Lord forever. Revelation 1-7. Look! He's coming on the clouds. Every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, those who killed him on the cross. They will see him, and they're going to go, oh, no. Jesus told them. As he's standing in front of the Sanhedrin, those 70 religious leaders who were trying him and, and condemning him and then dragging him to the Romans to do their dirty work for him, he says, you're going to see the Son of Man coming on the clouds. You're going to see it. And this is, this is verifying it. And all the peoples of the earth will mourn because of him. Interesting thought. Joshua 6. When, when God gave Joshua the battle plan for Jericho, remember that when he took him into the promised land? What was the, what was the battle plan? Was it throw your spears and your, your shoot your arrows and, and the catapults against the... Well, no. He said, lead off with the choir. <laughs> you know, lead with some trumpets there. He gave him, priests were to blow ram's horns the people were to march around the city. Then the people were to shout. And then the Lord's power was unleashed and the walls came down. Horns, shout. Walls fall. Judges 6. When Gideon, with his how many? 300, went against the Midianites. And how many were there? 135,000. They were outnumbered 450 to 1. They went against them. And here was their unconventional plan. Blow the trumpets, and his men were to shout. For the Lord God and for Gideon. And what happened? Power of the Lord fell. The enemy wiped themselves out. The Lord's given us pictures in the Old Testament of what's going to happen when he returns. The scripture says the trumpet call of God's going to sound. There's going to be a cry from the archangel, and the Lord's going to descend in power. The struggle began in Eden will be over. Paradise lost is going to be paradise restored. Hallelujah. This, this, but you've got to find it. You've got to hunt for it, and you'll see it. Now, here is a neglected passage, and I, I'm, getting, I'm getting close. In John 5, 22, beginning there and going on down, Jesus is writing, and he's giving us some hints about what's coming. And a lot of people don't even know this passage exists. Jesus says, hey, listen, the Father judges no one. He's entrusted all judgment to me, the Son. See, when the great white throne appears at the end of the book of Revelation, who's seated on the throne? Is it God? It is, but it's in the form of Jesus. He's handed the judgment to his son. I tell you the truth, whoever hears my word and believes him who has sent me has eternal life and will not be condemned. He's crossed over from death into life. He gives the plan of salvation. And I tell you the truth, he says, a time is coming and has now come when the dead, Greek for dead body, will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live. Do not be afraid, or do not be amazed at this, for a time is coming when all, all who are in the graves, we're thinking just Christians are going to burst out of there, you know, when all who are in their graves will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done good will rise to live. Those who have done evil will rise to be condemned. Saved and unsaved. 
gathered together. When Nancy and I were coming in this morning, I looked, you know, because the sun was coming up in the east, and we drove past the cemetery, and we saw almost all the headstones are facing the east. In most American cemeteries, that's what happened. The headstones face the east, you know, because we're waiting for what? The Lord to come. We're already facing that direction. Still, there are many American Christians, some in this room probably, who you want a secret rapture to happen. You want the Lord to come and take you out before horrible persecution. But listen to what Jesus said in John 16, 33. In this world, you will have trouble. But take heart. I have overcome the world. He said this before he even died on the cross. We're going to have trouble. We're going to have trouble. The only wrath you and I are exempt from is the wrath of God upon unbelievers at the return of Christ. We don't have to worry about that. That's settled. Amen. Freedom House is an, is an organization, a government organization, that keeps track of political activism around the world, both good and evil. And they report on the number of Christians who are martyred around the world every single year. Are you aware that nearly every year, the last 10, 11 years, there have been between 150 and 165,000 Christians martyred, killed, tortured at the hands of some communist governments, at the hand, but mainly at the hands of radical Muslims. Just recently, 15 Nigerian villages of Christians were killed unmercifully by Muslims. Does that sound like the Lord is going to pull us out before troubles come? In America, this is where this teaching thrives. People say, oh, we're not going to have to go through that. I heard a preacher the other day say it again. Oh, but we're not going to worry about it. The Lord's going to take us out. And that's when I started yelling at the radio again. No! No! You see how crucial this teaching is? Because, see, if we're taught that, and then, I mean, already some persecution is creeping into America a little bit. But if we're taught that, that the Lord's going to take us out, we don't have to worry. What does that say about these people in other parts of the world? Christians all over the world are being murdered. And they're looking at us and we're saying, oh, that's all right, we're going to be taken out. Well, what are we, chopped liver? We're Christians. How come we're not taken out? We don't want to believe it. But at the same time, say persecution does come, there have been a couple Christians killed in America for their faith. And we'll talk about one of them. But suddenly, you are being put in a position as a Christian that you can't buy or sell or, or purchase food for your family. You know, unless you recant, you know, and then show by your actions that you're with the government now or whatever organization that is in control. If that day ever comes... Or maybe some of your family stay. My, my brother-in-law was, was killed for being a Christian. Oh, Lord, I, I thought we were going to be taken out. I thought we were going to be spared this. Maybe what I've been taught here is all wrong. Maybe you don't even exist or you don't care. And the Lord says that the persecution will be such. In Matthew 24, he says, you're going to be handed over to be persecuted. You're going to be put to death. He's talking not only to his believers that are sitting there listening to him, but he's talking about the time when he will come. He's answering both questions. To the, that the disciples have asked. You're going to be hated by all nations because of me. That's going on. And at that time, it says, many will turn away from the faith and hate each other. And many false prophets are going to appear. They're going to deceive many people. They're just going to feed on it. They're going to see the kingdom of God being divided, people doubting their faith. Because of the increase of wickedness, the love of most will grow cold. 
Many people who called themselves believers. But then he says, but he who stands firm to the end will be what? Saved. Be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom was going to be preached to the whole world as a testimony. And then the end will come. Just before Jesus was crucified, he was praying in the garden. He prayed, my prayer, Father, is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. Jesus was supernaturally protected. Whenever he came to earth in the form of a little baby, he was supernaturally protected. Herod wanted him killed, didn't he? He, was, he couldn't do anything. He was, he was an infant. But the Lord supernaturally protected him and provided ahead of time for him and his family to be able to go to Egypt. There were times whenever Jesus, early in his ministry, went back to his own hometown, uptown of Nazareth, and he stood there, he read from the prophet Isaiah a passage pertaining to himself. And he says, it's been fulfilled. Here I am. I am the Messiah, is what he was saying. Some of them started questioning. But isn't this the young man? We know his mom, we know his dad, we know his brother. How can he dare say that he's the Messiah? And they took him out to the edge of the town where the town is built. Nazareth is built on the edge of a hill. And they're trying to throw him off the cliff. And it says Jesus stopped. And he turned and he walked right through them and they, nobody could touch him. He was supernaturally protected until his time had come. It happened to him several times where they were trying to stone him. The enemy was trying to stone him and he would not let it happen. The Lord would not let it happen. You and I, as believers, if we are serving Christ, we will be supernaturally protected. Some of you in this room, there have been times that you should have been dead. Maybe it was through disease. Maybe it was through a close call on the highway or at work or something. You, man, I was spared. I cannot believe I'm still alive. The Lord's not through with you yet. Now, your time will come, just like mine. I've had many, many close calls, but the Lord supernaturally protected me until this moment. It might have been for this moment. There may be somebody in this room today that needed to hear this, and the Lord spared my life just simply so I could share this with you today. You may be the one. And who knows, you may be the last soul to ever be saved. It could be you. And the Lord's given you that opportunity. Revelation 7-9 states there's going to be people saved from every nation, every tribe, every people, every language. Lord, I want to be in that number. Don't you? But there's also going to be people, young and old, from every tribe, every language that are going to be found among the goats. You do not want to be found in that number. When the trumpet sounds, the shout is heard, and the Lord appears, let me close with this. How are those angels who come and collect you going to be handling you? What side of the throne are they going to be sitting you on? Are you certain? Do you know? Are you his? Do you know without a shadow of a doubt that you're his kid? Now is not just the time for hoping it's going to be all right. Brother Rick, is, it doesn't really matter, does it? As long as I'm a believer, it doesn't really matter. I've just shared with you why it matters. It does matter what you believe. If you would, bow your head. It matters what you believe. We're going to sing a song, Turn Your Eyes Upon Jesus. Brother Jared's going to be here. I pray the Holy Spirit has been working on some of you. Some of you, I know you've had affirmed today what you already believe. You needed to hear that. You needed to be reminded of it. Some of you, maybe you're going, hmm, 
I need to hear some more about this. We'll come back tonight. Come back on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday. Maybe you've got some friends who have been led astray or need to hear this. You bring them with you. There's a lot of people coming to this house tonight that were not able to be here today. I encourage you to come and be a part of that number tonight. When I was an 11-year-old boy, grandson of a Baptist preacher, I still had not trusted Christ. I knew the books of the Bible. I knew all about Jesus. I knew every story in that Bible, but being born into a Christian family didn't make me a Christian any more than you've heard being born in a garage would make you a car. It's a personal thing. I had to make the decision myself. And I would lay awake at night because they were preaching about the Lord coming back and I'd lay awake at night. I knew he's coming. And oh my goodness, if he comes to the night, my mom and dad, they're going to be going to heaven and I'm going to be going to hell and I'm going to be stuck here with my two little brothers and oh my goodness I was terrified but on April 13th 1969 that's uh, coming up that'd be this Friday is the anniversary I trusted the Lord 49 years ago this Friday I trusted the Lord to come into my heart and life to be my Savior and Lord I believe Lord that you died on the cross for my sins you took my whipping. You took what I deserve. And you proved you could do that when you rose again on the third day like nobody else. Thank you, Jesus. And I went to bed that night and I slept with a smile. And I said, come on, Lord. I'm ready. Don't you want that? Thank you for listening to this message from Woburn Baptist Church. For more information, please visit us at www.wilburnbaptistchurch.org. Or you can also like us on Facebook.